Welcome to Unlocking Conflict, the podcast where we look at handling everyday tensions and disagreements better. This week, how can we stop having the same argument over and over again with friends, colleagues or families? What do we do when we seem to be going round and round in circles? Let's dive in. Good to be here today with Sarah, Fiona and Stephen and we're going to be talking about why do some arguments keep occurring and people have the same argument over and over again and how do we try and break that cycle. So going straight in with that very question, why do some arguments keep recurring in a relationship? One of the main reasons is that you're longing for resolution when you've had a discussion and with a recurring argument or whatever you call it, it, you don't get resolution and there is no change either. And I think transformation and change is what, what happens when you get to the end of a conversation. If that hasn't happened and you're still in the same place, the temptation is to keep on going back over that old ground. It struck me that there are differing situations in which that may arise. We can have the situation where someone behaves in a particular way which is frustrating or irritating. And that person does it again and again and again. Therefore, there is going to be a continuous response. You've done it again. It's just how they are. And that happens. So that's one situation. It's a bit like leaving the loose seat up. Oh, no, 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 no. We're not going to do the loose seat up. That gets far too personal. We may come back to that later. All right. You've then got conversations that sort of repeat when they take place at the wrong time. So after midnight or one in the morning, There is a tendency, I find at least, that if you get into a conversation, it just goes round and round and round. It's not the right time. Uh, And then there is the situation, and that I think is probably the most acute, where the conversation keeps coming back to the same thing because the underlying issue has never got sorted. So you have slightly different situations in which these repeating conversations uh, or arguments take place. And there may be slightly differing ways in dealing with each of those because they stem from a different core problem. Something we talk about in coaching quite a lot is the impact of other people on the conflict, which can also mean that it recurs. So one of the models that we use is the drama triangle, um, which is kind of about people's responses to conflict and what role they play and what needs they get out of perpetuating the conflict so in that triangle you have a persecutor a victim and a rescuer so the persecutor might be the person who's like why did you leave the Lucy up you always do that you're useless the victim is then a person who's thinking oh she always complains about me I can't do anything right and then complains to the rescuer who might be another person in that family unit or friendship unit who then goes to the persecutor and says stop getting at her you always get at her. Or offers to put the loose seat down. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I guess one of the questions I've been thinking about is when I perpetuate a conflict, what is really going on? And is there something in this which actually feeds a need that I have in quite a dysfunctional way, but that makes it harder for me to break out of it? So the rescuer might like playing that role of being the one who sorts the problem and the victim might like the role of playing the victim because then they get attention from the rescuer. You know, there are lots of reasons why we might want to stay in that victim role. So having that third party involved basically disincentivizes you from resolving that issue between the two who the issue is really between because something else is going on there which is getting in the way. Is that what you're saying, Sarah? Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
so we've identified so far that you could be stuck in a cycle of arguments because of behavior because of an underlying issue that's not being talked about or because of potentially the impact of another person or party which is keeping that behavior or that underlying issue going have you got any stories or examples of this kind of conflict to bring it to life a bit when phil and i first started dating he played the role of the fun finder you know you want to impress someone so you go and find these quirky london events like crochet on a roof or whatever and i really love that because i don't feel particularly confident finding those things but i want to think of myself as someone who does those things and I expected Phil to carry on doing that and for me not to do it. So we ended up arguing about not doing enough fun things. And that ends up in, you know, the sticking plaster is, okay, well, you'll organise date night one week, I'll do the next week. But actually the, the bigger issue that helped me stop arguing with Phil about it was that I realised that it was about my responsibility to do that for myself. If I want to do it, then actually I'm able to do it. And it's not Phil's role to do that. And that meant that I could change how I responded in the situation. So that's really, it's about having some need uh, which is not met. And because it's not met, it triggers uh, a behaviour or a reaction. And because it's not met, that behaviour and that reaction, time after time, surfaces. And because it surfaces, the other person reacts, so you're back into that same cycle round and round and round, uh, trying to deal with it. And you may, as it were, strap a, a, a sticking plaster over a deep wound by trying to deal with what might be regarded as the particular issue, like, but not actually going to what underlies it. I remember when I was trained as a mediator, an illustration was given of two kids in a sandpit arguing about who should be holding on to a particular toy they, they were playing with. And the parents come along and say, look, you've got to share it. You have five minutes, then you have five minutes, then you have five minutes and see what happens. Ten minutes later, the same outcry. And what they then realise is that it isn't so much about do I have ten minutes now or do you have ten minutes. It was about who owns it. Because one of the kids says, this is mine. And in those circumstances, the perspective was quite different from I have ten minutes, I have ten minutes. It's a tiny illustration, but it's one I think which is helpful because very often in these situations, there are triggers for particular behaviours which give rise to what are called manifesting issues. The sort of the visible, immediate problem is then sorted. But unless you look below that to the underlying cause, you're not ultimately going to cause something to change. You've all beautifully talked about getting down to the needs for each person, but how do you do that when you're in an actual conflict? Well, one of the ways is really going back to the iceberg scenario, isn't it? And asking ourselves the question, what is actually happening underneath the surface? The, the argument that we're having is what's presenting as the, ice, the tip of the iceberg, um, but realising that that's not what it's all about. So once we've identified that, it's helpful at that stage to say, so what is mattering to me? What's, what's happening to me? What are my needs? What are my frustrations? What am I feeling? And once we start to get to that part, we can start to ask what's happening to the other person. And then we may change the type of conversation. So we can ask different questions about things that search under the surface rather than re-engaging on that surface tip of the iceberg area. 
and, and you've got to be real um, because so much of this round and round and round the course problem leads to deep frustration and one can see it beginning to happen and you think here we go again and you're stuck uh, in this circle and if you keep on going round in the way you normally would do all it usually does is lead to blame and criticism and judgment and I think uh, what Fiona was saying is that the first step out of it is to perhaps just take a step back and to recognize that this particular conversation isn't going very well. Uh, and then potentially to say, well, why isn't it going very well? Maybe to share with the other person or talk to the other person about how well he or she thinks it is going. Uh, and if you both agree it's not going very well, then maybe to ask, well, why isn't it going well? What's going on here? You know, on a scale of one to 10, how do you think this conversation is going? And, and then, well, what would you how would you like it to be going on a scale of one to 10? And then have you got any ideas of how that might happen? So you've immediately stepped from an argument to a, 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 some kind of connection. And I think it's getting to connection that we're doing because we've got, obviously got disconnection. Uh, if, if we're, we're each entrenched in our own viewpoint, in our own camp. And the scary thing about that is that you, you can end up with so little hope for a conversation that you no longer talk. And I know a few people recently were saying, we, we just don't believe that there's any point in having a conversation because nothing's going to change. And that's a very sad scenario to be facing. There's a quote actually here, I just want to pop in, from Theodore Zeldin. He says, the kind of conversation I like is one in which you are prepared to emerge a slightly different person. And I suppose that's what we hope that we will have an impact in what we say and also be prepared to be impacted by the other person and that gives a hope. It's such a brave thing to do because like you said it can feel so hopeless and to take that step to say let's get to the real issue is actually a stepping out and saying I hope that we can fix the real issue. It's much easier to stay on the trigger point than to actually go there to the real thing that's happening and it's a, it's a brave brave step because it it can feel like it, that means everything could unravel if you realise actually we can't get beyond this. But like you said, there is hope. And by naming it and by beginning to talk about it in a different way, there is hope for transformation in that relationship. I, I think what you just said, Anna, about naming it is, is the essence of it. Yeah. If, if one can acknowledge and name and identify those things, those precious things, the, the underlying issues, then we, we do have a chance. Um, have we got any stories of success? <laughs> stories where either personally or people that you've worked with or friends who have managed to break this cycle? Because when you're in it, it does feel impossible. And it's all very well to talk about the theory behind it and how you would do it. But what? give us some hope. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually quite a complex and personal example, but I guess that illustrates how these things often happen when it's complex and emotional. About 18 months ago, I caught a bug from the office and ended up with a health condition kind of out of the blue, which was not life-threatening, but quite life-changing. And that affected both me and Phil, my husband. And we found that we ended up arguing quite a lot about it, probably the most that we've argued about one thing. And it was all in the kind of problem-solving frame. So, okay, we don't know what this thing is. We don't know what to do about it, but we would end up fighting with each other about how we approach the thing. And I, I think the turning point for us was 
incorporate some of the things that we've just talked about. Like, so we ended up going away for the weekend and talking about it outside of the house. And that perspective meant that we were much more reflective about how the conversation was going because we were in a different space. And I think we also talked about roles. So part of the argument was that Phil would get into problem solving role, perhaps slightly into carer role, like let me help you with this awful thing. And I didn't want him to play that role. And having the language to say, actually, when, when you play this role, I'm, I'm not particularly comfortable with that. And for him to then share, well, actually, I just want to help. And I'm feeling out of control with this thing. And that's, that's how I've been responding. Helped us to rethink how we approach the issue. And then a really practical thing, I think, is also that we all have different needs around something like that. Like there's a need for emotional support. There's a need for practical support from a medical point of view. And the relationship that you're in is not going to meet all of those needs, but that doesn't mean those needs can't be met elsewhere. So it's taking a wider view and thinking, okay, well, what else do I need in this situation that can actually take the pressure off this particular relationship, which is causing the conflict, but will help me move forward personally in it. And I've heard other friends as well who say perhaps someone has been really struggling to work out what their needs and feelings are. And that makes it quite hard to work through a conflict because you don't know. So taking that space outside of the relationship to thrash those out with the therapist or something like that can then help you move forward because you're not putting all of the responsibility on the immediate space that the conflict is happening in. So I wouldn't say it's perfect, like it's still, you know, life is hard and things are complex and things take time. And a lot of this is about reforming habits. But I think forcing yourself to choose how to respond rather than doing it instinctively is really key. And then communicating that to the other person so that they know, even if you can't actually act on that immediately. So that was so helpful. And I think what you described really well there was taking the heat out of that immediate cycle of having that same conversation through doing things like being somewhere else taking the time to take a step back and think why do I feel like that being able to talk to each other honestly without the heat <laughs> and the shouting and, I, and and that's really hard to do but it meant that you were able to have a different conversation to the one you kept having over and over again. Can I just make an observation that the the, the, the vice as it were the sort of the pain of what we're talking about, which is people locked into the spiral, into the circuit, the powerlessness and sense of hopelessness and sometimes futility uh, that, that that can bring, is because there is an awareness that and tomorrow, next week, next month or whenever, this is likely to happen again. And I'm going to be as powerless then as I am now. So you know it's going to happen, it's going, you know it's likely to come up, but that does mean that you will have time between now and then not to pretend it isn't going to happen and try not to think about it, but to do the opposite, which is actually to think about it more than you would otherwise do, but to think about it not in the sense of working out how wrong and unfair she or he is, the other person, in the reaction that they had, but to think about yourself. And it goes back, I think, Sarah, to what you... Uh, beautifully said just now, which is trying to work out what you need and what you're feeling. And if those of you guys listening to this sort of feel this sort of sense almost of horror of the knowledge that this is going to happen yet again, take a bit of time out and just try and work out really, really, really honestly 
not by pointing fingers, but to yourself, what's going on within you? And what really is it that's happening? And what isn't being met? What's the need that is lurking and that needs to be expressed? Because once you've done some sort of recognition of that yourself, then maybe you can have the courage in the conversation to try and bring that up. Yeah, um, detail around what do I really feel or rather than what do I think I should feel? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I've sort of thought of, I've discussed with various people over time. And one thing that's come up as a, a recurring argument is to do often with looking after elderly or infirm parents between siblings when they're sharing the care and just imagining a scenario, but it's sort of based on, on a few people I know where there's a, a sense that one of the siblings isn't pulling their weight and the other one is is doing all the care all the support and the argument goes on around you know I've been five times and to your one time and it can go on and on and on because you're needing clarity who's going to go and visit you're needing support because you feel you're doing all the running you need reassurance that the other sibling cares as much as you do and that your parents needs are going to get met so those are all things that might be going on but the kind of argument that goes on around that is one might be pushed into a hole. They might be guilt tripped. They might be under huge pressure. They don't feel understood. And the other sibling is putting all that pressure on because they need care. They need mutual support. But they never get to talk about what they need. They just get to criticise yeah. the other person. Yeah. So it's all about you've only been this time. And they say, well, your life's easier than mine. So you can and you live nearer. And all of these things keep on going round and round. But if they could just step back and say, just tell me a bit about what your pressurised, you know, what your life looks like at the moment. I, I haven't heard about your pressure at work. Uh, you know, you're living uh, a little bit further away. I, I, I want to hear about it. Please tell me, I'll listen. And, and then the other one might then have the space to say, well, I'd like to hear about what it's like going in five times a week. You know, they felt too guilty to ask that question. So all of those dynamics are going on in that sort of sibling rivalry and of course you could get to the scenario where one sibling isn't able to go as much or maybe maybe they weren't as close to the parents and that might be something that you get to the place where you say okay I have to accept that it's not going to be how I hoped it would be there just isn't that relationship and but let's agree that at least we've established that I have to live with that and I'll have to adjust to that so that might be another dynamic going on it takes huge courage mm. The courage sometimes to dare, I think Anna, you mentioned it earlier about hope, daring to hope, daring to believe that things can change, daring to put the other person first, to look at the person and what's going on for her, for him. Uh, it's really difficult, if you know what I'm saying, to have that conversation. It's, it's, it's not easy. And sometimes you need help. I've been wondering whether one of the reasons we perpetuate conflict is because we're not ready to own up to what you were just saying Fiona about compromise or loss or or the, the fact that actually this is the way the situation is mm -hmm. like you think this I think this we're not going to change each other and so we have to live with that well it's I mean, it's, it's really profound mm -hmm. because not everything gets sorted and it's very easy you know go, you guys out there listening to us thinking oh well we do this we do that it's all going to get sorted it won't necessarily but it's a process we go through in terms of this honesty and integrity, respect for each other and for ourselves, means that though you know, the thing doesn't necessarily get sorted out, though, as Fiona said, 
we may have to recognize, well, do you know what? Dad never quite had the same relationship with me as he did with you. Deeply, deeply painful. But that process of that sort of self-recognition in the presence of someone else does something necessarily to your relationship with that person. And that something is almost always positive. You've gone through that sort of vulnerability. You dared to hope, to believe, to trust, whatever. You've had a conversation and at the end of it, you blink. It's a little bit like Fiona's quote. It's a conversation which means that at the end of it, you've changed. And you don't always know quite what that change will be and if it's often, but it can be profound. It doesn't necessarily mean that once you've done all that, you're going to agree on the foundational issue, but you've both been heard and you both now understand each other more deeply. And hopefully that means you can either lay it to rest, agree to differ, but be able to break that constantly having a go at each other because you think differently um, or work out a new path for your relationship and how it's going to work. But unless you have that conversation about what the deep rooted issue is, you, you can't get to that transformation. Do you agree with that? That sometimes you're just not going to agree. There was a, a story of a guy in one of the prisons I worked in and he and another, another of the prisoners uh, had us, it was actually sort of danger levels in terms of their arguments. There was violence involved. And eventually after some mediation and facilitation, they got to a place where they actually understood that they were never going to get on. There were too many issues, but they at least acknowledged honestly that where they both stood, what was difficult for them. And their resolution was, we will, we will pass each other without saying anything in the corridors when we meet. And because they understood that that was what they were going to do to keep each of them to keep safe and each of them to keep respectful, it was a working plan. So we've been talking there about issues that have become deeply ingrained and at times you've used the word toxic and very difficult. But going back to some of the slightly less intense circular arguments that people can have, is there a sense that time and place can have some kind of value in helping to break that cycle thinking more about when we're having these arguments and why we might be having the arguments yeah i definitely think that plays a role um changing the time and place of of where you address issues or even your habits around each other at different points um i think can really help and I think time is very significant generally in this because one of the reasons why arguments might recur is because actually change takes time and all this stuff around working out what's really going on takes time. And sometimes the reasons issues don't get resolved is because we actually haven't given enough time to the process and we haven't pushed past the uncomfortable bit in the conversation to get to really what is going on partly because it's hard to do but also because it's very easy to deprioritize when there are other demands um, but ultimately if you don't give yourself that time you will kick yourself because those issues recur and ultimately it's worse in the long term okay yeah that makes total sense and it goes back to giving yourself the space which you've all talked about to find out what's the need underneath it all and why am i feeling like this and why do i always react like this I think sometimes you can take it out of the circuit in quite subtle ways as well if you manage to catch something in the moment. So, for example, recently, it's a small example, but um, I noticed that my mum and I have this recurring pattern. And because not everything will always be an argument as such as we've been talking about. Sometimes it's an issue that actually no one's talking about. So it never gets named and you never address it. 
Um, but I noticed this pattern where we'd arrange to see each other, something else would come up in my diary, we hadn't quite firmed down plans, and then I'd contact her saying, is it okay if I also do this? And she'd say, yeah, that's fine. But then as soon as I meet her face to face, you realise it's not fine. And it happened with a weekend where we'd ended up cat sitting, which meant that we only saw them for a day rather than a weekend. And when we saw them, my mum said, oh, so you chose cat sitting over your mother with a smile on her face, which I guess illustrates how important humour is often to diffuse the tension. But in that moment, I thought I actually said to her, I was like, oh, so when you say it's fine, you don't mean it's fine. (laughs) And I need to know that. So that actually when we have this conversation again, we can do it differently. And I I guess my reflections on that was that I hadn't given her enough space in that process to really express what she was feeling and needing. But that perpetuated an argument and she needed almost the trigger point of the thing having happened to express her real feelings. If you can catch it in the moment and take that reflection almost before it's got to a big issue, where are the patterns recurring? And how can I bring it out into the open before it becomes a habit, which is then much harder to undo, then I think it helps in a kind of preventative way. Sharon, in a previous conversation that I've had with Sharon, who's been in lots of the other podcasts, she talks about sometimes you don't need to transform a whole thing. You can just nudge the conversation in a different way. It's not changing something. It's not suddenly agreeing on something you differ on, but actually it creates a solution. Yeah, I think that's really important because what we're often talking about in these podcasts is changing our behavior and change doesn't happen overnight so if you can provide little steps then you might think that they're little if you look at them in isolation but actually over time it can change the direction of a relationship or of a conversation and actually in a way sometimes that is the only way that people change is in small stages that is why again time and patience is quite important Yeah, I think one of the small nudges one could make is to just say, look, we seem to have been here before a few times um, and we don't seem to be making any difference. So I'm wondering if we can go and think about both of us, you know, go and think about some ways that we could make, make, make a difference. So that could be a little nudge that's doable. And I really liked your earlier example of on a scale of one to 10, how is this going for you? Because for me, it's about two. <laughs> it's not going well. Um, or I'm about to, I feel like I'm struggling to keep my temper under control right now. Let's break this and have this conversation tomorrow when it's not midnight and we're not both exhausted. Now, from what I've heard today, again, it's about looking at your own behavior and taking your own needs into account first when you're having these difficult arguments, thinking, why am I reacting the way I'm reacting? What's the issue behind it? What's the need that I have? And then being able to be brave enough to open that conversation with the other person to get underneath the surface. Thank you for listening, everybody. This has been Unlocking Conflict. If you found this podcast useful, please like, share, subscribe, review, and tune into our next episode to hear how mediation can help you when you've reached your limits, or even before that point. Thanks for listening.